let me begin with the question. Uh, when you need help, what or whom do you turn to? What or whom do you look to? Uh, on my vacation, we visited a, a very um, good brunch place. It was very yummy, and they were just starting out a new business. And uh, um, my kids actually were saying, this is the best breakfast I've ever had to the, uh, the owner there, the chef. And she said, well, then help through Yelp, right? She had a little slogan there, help through Yelp. And if you're not familiar with Yelp, uh, it's an uh, online rating service, and there's an app. And many people use this little app to find good restaurants. And it's just an example of how at times when we need help, whether it's help to find a place to eat because we're indecisive or we want to know what product to buy because something's broken at home or what uh, auto mechanic to go to, when we're looking for that five-star rating, I mean, that's just a very practical example of help that we need. Uh, that's one place in general, just as a culture, that we turn to. Uh, for emotional help, all of us, we go through ups and downs emotionally. And, and where do you turn to? Our culture certainly has jumped onto the bandwagon of spirituality and yoga and meditation and so forth and mindfulness. Maybe if you're at work, and you're, you're in a more sort of corporate setting, then it's these consultants that make the big bucks, right? And, and people make wonderful livings out of being strategic consultants. But they're just another example, just in our society, our culture, uh, when we are in a bind, when we need help, these are the kinds of people that we turn to. Now, when it comes to God, sadly, and the reality is that our culture believes that God is irrelevant, that uh, he just doesn't matter anymore. That he's impractical. There's that old saying that Christians often or religious people can be uh, of so heavenly that they're of no earthly good. Or maybe God is impotent. They look out on the world and all the evil and suffering. They wonder, where is this powerful God of yours? Or maybe that he's inhibiting. People want to experience freedom and joy in life, but they interpret following Jesus as just these straight-jacket rules. And so there's this cartoon here, uh, and, and the caption, it's not here, but it's God versus Google. And so here's this Sherpa kind of person, this wise man up in the mountains and this mountain climber looking for sage wisdom. And he says, don't tell me you climbed all the way up here before trying Google. <laughs> and my kids would agree. They... they they don't ask me or Linda, my wife, for advice or wisdom or knowledge per se. Say, Dad, can you Google blank? Just ask Siri blank. And so even parenting as a quick tangent is changing in this age of Google. But what still needs to happen, even though perhaps Google as a powerful search engine uh, has, uh, gives us much information, how to process that information, we still need much wisdom and much help and God certainly still has a place for that, even though powerful uh, organizations and, and think tanks like Google, there was, this was in Time Magazine back in 2012, an article, a feature article, that perhaps can even Google defeat death. Now, as we come to Psalm 146 today, Psalm 146 is a nice uh, sample of the, the last five Psalms that end in just exuberant praise. 
And Psalm 146 leads off into this uh, wonderful, just firework ending of psalms that end with praising God. And what does Psalm 146 call us to believe? The Christ follower's joy. If you call yourself a Christian today, if you're a Christ follower, your joy, and if you're not a Christ follower yet, this is the joy that Jesus and His Gospel is offering to you. The Christ follower's joy is in increasingly experiencing Jesus as your help. That's, that's our joy. That's our privilege. That's, that's our blessing to more and more experience Jesus in more and more concrete ways as our help. If you're the type that appreciates or even perhaps needs uh, an outline, it's there in the bulletin so you can follow along. And so let's dive in to the text and I want to pull out at least three things today. There's certainly more uh, truths and, and applications, but three points today to help us uh, walk in this truth, to, to obey and live out what Psalm 146 is calling us to believe, to make Jesus our increasingly uh, most important help. So first, if you want to be happy, if you want to be happy, don't put your trust in princes. The psalmist here, he begins in verse 1, Praise the Lord! And this is emphatic. He is shouting from a mountaintop. Praise the Lord. He repeats it. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Now when we see praise the Lord here, you need to remember it's not only command, but it is a statement, I am happy in the Lord. Praise. Whenever we praise, even if it's not praising the Lord, if we praise a just one another, or an author, or an artist, or we praise someone or something, there's, we're, we're doing that out of an overflowing state of happiness. And so the psalmist calling out to Yumi to praise the Lord emphatically twice here, he's saying, I am happy as happy can be in the Lord. And notice as well, again, here's a spiritual discipline for all of us. He says, praise the Lord. In some sense, he is praising God directly, but also he's speaking to himself. He's not praising himself, but he is preaching to himself. He is reminding himself in an authoritative way, Oh, my soul. I often wonder, post-Christ, I envy when Christ was here and the disciples could tangibly see him and walk with him. In Christ, I wonder at times, was it really better that you left us the Spirit I think it would be so much easier to just see you concretely, tangibly, and follow uh, just an actual human being that I could see and, and not to just have your spirit and the word. And, and I have those kind of honest pinings in my prayer life. But here the psalmist, perhaps maybe prophetically knowing one day that Jesus would come and he would ascend, but he would just leave us his spirit and his word and, and the church to be Christ to one another, encourage one another, that we need the spiritual discipline to keep reminding ourselves, to not just reminders, but, but even preaching to ourselves every day, every chance we have, every moment, that God is good, that He has loved us perfectly and finally through His Son, Jesus. And so just a quick sort of practical application question. Do you preach to your own soul the gospel? Do you 
praise the Lord and remind your soul that God is so good. And he continues in verse 2, I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. And so the psalmist here has discovered the purpose in life. There's no other searching. There's no other pining. There's no other questioning. He has found the way to live, to be in the Lord. And certainly we know that he has gone through ups and downs in life. In fact, this, book, this psalm, the psalms, if you don't know, they're organized into five books. And this last book, from Psalm approximately 101 to the end, and Psalm 146 naturally falls into this last book, it was organized in such a way to remind the people of God of their sojourn, of their journey, being called out as the people of God, and then just a broad stroke, they disobeyed God, and then they were sent off into exile. And so there, in the middle of the Psalms, you see a very dark lamentation psalms, de- de- uh, the, uh, the, the uh, deprecatory psalms, where they're even calling out God's curses on his enemies and those inflicting injustice on the people of God. But this fifth book is the final book that the people of God would end on, and it is an exclamation. It is a celebration. And so the psalmist here, he's saying, I've I've found the reason to live, and while I have breath, this is what I'm going to give my every ounce towards to live with this lens, to look out on every situation and every day with a lens that God is worthy of my praise. And then he defines what it means to live in praise of the Lord in the negative, and he says, put not your trust in princes. And this is where we get the first point. If you want to be truly happy, then don't put your trust in princes. First, trust. It, trust here, it, it means simply what we all probably understand as trust. Something that you find your confidence in. Something that is secure for you. But another interesting angle to the definition of this word in the original language is no suspect. You have no suspicion. That's what trusting means here. That you don't give any second thought to what you are trusting. And it's a, a word for you and me as well. We need to take inventory at times. What am I going through life without even suspecting anything of it? We actually, uh, my family and I, we flew in this morning. And it's a long story. We won't get into it. But uh, basically, there was a delay and all that. And uh, we just landed at around 6.30 this morning. And uh, the taxi that we had arranged fell through. And so I had, was going to look for another taxi. And as I came out, and partly maybe because I was kind of just jet-lagged and tired from the red-eye flight. And there's this gentleman, and, and he just kind of whispered in sort of a, you know, shady way, like, you need a taxi? <laughs> right? Just waiting. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I do, but because I was tired, I just sort of fell into it. We got home safely. He wasn't an axe murderer or anything like that. Um, but my point is this. I, I had no suspicion, right? I just kind of trusted and we go through our everyday, there's just sort of this you know, autopilot where we just trust certain things and people without even suspecting that perhaps this isn't good for me or, or what I should be placing my confidence in. And then he gets specific. 
Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. Again, now context, historical context. Why? What would the people of God think of as they read this phrase at the end, book five, as they're recounting their journey, and the Psalms reflect the people of God's journey? This would reflect them being delivered from their exile. Their exile from Babylon, earlier from Assyria, and they would remember how they got there because they started trusting in the wrong princes. They started trusting in man, in their own devices. And even when they were in exile, even though it was clear that God, he was fulfilling his promise that if you disobey them, there are going to be consequences, they began to trust the foreign princes. And many of God's people didn't want to come back home and return to their land. And so the psalmist calls out to God's people and to you and me today, don't put your trust. Don't be just so naive and unsuspecting of these princes. Now here, for the people of God, it was a literal prince. He was referring to literal princes. But for you and me today, there's also a literal application. Our prime minister is not our great hope. But also metaphoric. What are the princes in your life? What are the pleasures and possessions and people and positions and power that you see as your prince. That in your heart of hearts, if you're honest enough to articulate it, I think there's some salvation here for me. And the psalmist is very frank. When his breath departs, he returns to earth. On that very day, his plans perish. All these other human princes, literal and metaphoric, they corrupt, they pass away. They die. So we need this. We need to pay attention to the psalmist's exhortation here because identifying your princes, whether literal or metaphoric, it will eventually help you identify your kingdom. Because whoever is sitting on the throne in your heart, it identifies what you're actually living for. Are you truly now calling out to, the, to my fellow Christ followers? We need to check every day. Are we continuing to live for God's kingdom, for Christ in His kingdom, and the gospel? Or are we being lured away and being enticed by all the promises and, and glitter and lure of the world's kingdom? And for my friends who are still searching spiritually today, this is a question to you. Is the kingdom that you're trying to build, is it going to last? Second then, if you want to be happy, hope in the Lord's help. This is the psalmist's exhortation to us. If we want to be happy, then it's about hope now. It's not just about where we look for our help, but our help, thinking about our help, where we look for help, it gives us clues about what we actually hope in. And so even in our everyday, from the small things to the big things, and just even in our practical needs, perhaps a plumber or, or help at work or help with homework or whatever it may be, what our affections inside actually lean on for help. It, it reveals where our hope is. And, and it's important to really discern what or who our hope is because that gives us further clues into what or who we really actually think is our salvation. 
I really appreciate my mom because growing up, um, yeah, she's an example of, of really looking to the Lord for help, even in the small things. I, I remember seeing her when she lost something in the home. She would just be whispering a prayer. She wasn't superstitious or, or, or you know, thinking God is some magical formula that she'll be able to find something because she just prays. But her heart of dependence, Lord, I really need to find this thing. Can you help me? And somehow she would always find it. I remember one day, again, not to be superstitious and not to turn God into just some, you know, vending machine and so forth. But I remember I've lost something that was very precious to me. And I remembered my mom. And I said, Lord, you know, I don't expect you to just magically show up as a genie and so forth. But just in my heart, I depend on you. You know where it is. And somehow, I don't know, just guide me there and... And the search was, it, 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 it was found very quickly. And so my point is this, just even in little things, if we would just take that, say that short breath prayer, prayer just a short exhale prayer, that prayer of dependence, just a short sentence from your heart of hearts, say, God, I depend on you. You're my help. That's what the psalmist is getting at here. And so he says in verse 5, to show you this from the Word. That's not just some idea. It's a nice idea. Blessed. Again, this Word that is the sum of the deepest happiness. Blessed is He whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, His God. Notice the personal nature there of God. It's a relationship. It's as if you and I going to someone, another human being, another person in our life that we deem smart or dependable. And it's a, we personally ask, can you help me? That's what the psalmist is getting at here. But there's a connection between our help and our hope. And what or whom we turn to for our help, it, it, it hints at what we hope in, which hints at where we truly believe our salvation lies. Now, what the psalmist does in the next few verses then, he unpacks these beautiful perfections of God. And these seven repetitions, the Lord is. So blessed is he whose help is, beginning, the God of Jacob. What is the psalmist wanting the people of God to remember? When they heard the name God of Jacob, they remembered God as covenantal. God being this God who made the promise, an unbreakable promise to the wrestler, to the, the younger one, the marginalized one, to the swindler, to the one that was cheated by his uncle, to the one that suffered agony and pain because his sons set up this elaborate scheme and deception that his favorite son, Joseph, was murdered or eaten by and just devoured alive. This Jacob that went through many toils and God was covenantally committed, unconditionally favoring Jacob. So first, the, he, the psalmist is pointing out, God is, your God in perfection is a covenantal God. Second, in verse 6, who made heaven and earth. We're meant to be reminded, and we need to be reminded every day 
that God is creator God. He is the beginning and the end. He is from whom everything came into being through His Son, Jesus. And when we understand that, when we accept that, when you speak to a child and who asks, where did I come from? And the answer is, you were preciously knit together by Creator God, and it gives them the most sense of purpose and identity and, and value. When we remember that God is Creator God, it goes well for our souls. And then the psalmist wraps these two ideas together, who keeps faith forever. Even the solar eclipse that happened last week, that happens every 20 years or so, and, and it's this beautiful scientific phenomenon. It's because the Creator God, the God who's made a covenant even with His creation, is keeping everything in order and aligning all the stars and moon and sun in their rotations. But God is not only covenantal and Creator. Psalmist goes on to unpack these perfections of God. He is God who executes justice. And so now we begin to see a string of attributes that reflect God being Redeemer, taking what is broken or lost and finding it, restoring it. And so God is the God who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. All the humanitarianism, all the good that happens in this world, it's because God's common grace continues to call out to even people who reject God. And there's goodness that is stirred up in them. And then, in, if we're honest through history, many of the, the, the fine institutions and powerful forces in society and culture that have done good were started by Christians of whom the gospel took a hold and grip and they had to just but overflow God's love for the hungry and the oppressed and His compassion to give food. The Lord sets the prisoners free. This is both literal. God has set prisoners free. Has set, he set His people free from slavery. But also, most importantly, this is spiritual. That He continues to set spiritual people free. Our people free spiritually. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. Jesus did this literally. But also, His Spirit opens up eyes to, to see His beauties to see this wonderful message and to understand it, to receive it, that God has forgiven us and loved us. And the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. You see all of these as little examples, and more than little, beautiful, powerful, important examples, descriptions of God being Redeemer. And the Psalms continues, the Lord loves the righteous and watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But, redemption also has another side. Because if you're not redeemed, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Now what does this mean? Just very practically, for you and me, every day, in our everyday. You can confidently hope, confidently hope, in Jesus for help, because God being covenantal, God in covenant will never forsake you. No matter how bad your life is right now, God is right there, 
Jesus is right there. The Spirit is right there. And He will never forsake you when it especially matters. And by that, I mean specifically when we all stand before the judgment throne of God. When it especially matters, when it will matter the most, if you have binded yourself to Christ by faith and His unconditional grace is for you, He will never forsake you. And God's judgment will pass over you. You can confidently hope in Jesus for help because God as Creator who owns this whole universe, who holds the whole universe in His hands, and and He can manifest, He can exercise His providence, He can exercise His provision and His compassion because it's all His. God as Creator will resource you for the one calling that truly matters. And that one calling, the highest calling first is to be a child of Christ. And He will give you everything you need, every grace to persevere and to follow Him to the very end. And as we live out that spiritual calling, He gives us the joy and pleasure to discover a vocational calling, uh, relational callings, in family, in friendships, in society. He will give you everything that you need to live this life, even though it's temporal, to live this life as joyfully and satisfactorily as possible. Because everything you need is in His hands. And you can confidently hope in Jesus for help because God as Redeemer will restore you to the positivity that truly matters. And what I mean by that is this. Especially coming from Southern California, staying with uh, one of my best friends and, and my aunt, split the time between them. And, and one thing you notice automatically when you're in Southern California is just the positivity. I mean, from the sun, the, the, they say literally, scientifically, sun is brighter there. And it might be because of the Pacific Ocean and reflecting off and all this and that. And someone was trying to explain to me. But everyone is just more positive, more open-minded, and so forth. And, and I don't blame them. They're, they're just trying to make the best of their lives and think positive. But what we need is not just positive thinking, because positive thinking, oftentimes, it just sort of brushes all the negativity under the rug and doesn't deal with it head-on and at its roots. Or it's just a little naive. What we really need is redemptive thinking. An ability to come face to face with even the ugly, even the broken, but somehow by grace to see a God who is so powerful to work from that, those ashes and bring beauty out of it. Now, let me just try to illustrate more concretely. Um, these are three real women. And these are not their real names. But Genevieve and the common ties, they're all single moms. Divorced single moms. And Genevieve, whom I know personally, is stuck in the past, is stuck in bitterness, is stuck in continuing to try to just shift the blame on anyone and everyone for her situation. And it's so sad to see her just painfully live out her life. 
Now, Jennifer, she's no friend of God. In fact, she's an atheist, but also single mom, divorced. But she has become unapologetic and has been a tour de force of positivity and, and just not wanting to stay in the past and making the most of her life. And kudos to her just when you see her energy, her strength, her, her grit to continue to build her life even though it's broken. It's, it's wonderful. But in the end, even though she was so positive, and did so much with her life, it won't stand. The princes, or perhaps princess herself that she trusted in, it won't stand. And then there's Miranda. Again, same situation. Single mom, divorced, but a Christ follower. And someone who has looked into the face of Christ come with everything, both her faults, but also her pleas for justice at what her husband did to her. And with the power of the gospel and forgiveness, facing even the, the sinfulness in her, in her own heart that contributed to this breakup, and walking humbly with the Lord, and in the Word, and the Spirit, step by step, growing her into greater Christ-likeness, it's a different picture. It's a different story. It looks the same as Jennifer somewhat on the surface. But underneath and in eternity, how it all be revealed to be radically different is because God is her help. Jesus is her help. So finally, if you want to be happy, trust the Prince. Psalm 146, there are little beautiful clues and hints that we're meant to pick up. There is a singular prince that we're meant to trust in. We're meant to trust the Son of Man. There is a beautiful theme that runs through all of Scripture. Scripture looking towards this, this title, the Son of Man, this, this one man from humanity that would rise up you want to be happy, you need to trust the Prince, the Son of Man, for He is your eternal help. So who is the Son of Man? Who is this Prince that we're referring to? The psalmist ends in verse 10, The Lord will reign forever. The Lord, He will reign forever. He is the one true help that lasts beyond this earth and into the new creation. And look how personal the psalmist makes it again as he wraps this up. Your God will reign forever. O Zion. That, that is a beautiful name for the people of God. It's, a, it's the name of the city, Jerusalem, but it re represented even more beyond just a geographical little boundary of a city. It represented the people of God. To all generations, praise the Lord. So who is this prince? Who is the Son of Man? Who is this Lord that will reign forever? Now let me pause and first let's be honest. You and I, if we're honest, we, we want to trust our princes. We want to trust our strength. We want to trust the stock market. We want to trust our company. We want to trust our savings. We want to trust 
Whatever it is, we want to. Tr- we want to. We're human that way. We want to trust our princes. And if you're like me, this is my confession here. I find it hard to hope in the Lord's help at times. Because when sometimes when I look out at my concrete situation, the the concreteness of it feels overwhelming to the spiritual truth, the spiritual nature of God's help. So how did Jesus and His Gospel help me? How do we begin to look to Jesus and His Gospel? Now, just as humans, we want just practical help for our thinking. So we love reading our self-help books. We love reading just little bits of wisdom here and there, getting advice from friends and so forth. We want help for our feelings. We, we, so we value our counseling and be able to have a listening ear. And we want just practical tips for our doing, whether it's a YouTube video on how to fix something or just taking seminars and more education. But what we really need, what we really need is help for our eternity. This picture here of this beautiful mountain, this mountain that could be a symbol of strength and fortitude. There's something in this picture that you can't see that I want to use as an analogy, and as an analogy for what it means to look to Jesus and His gospel for help. And what you can't see is the air, but it's there. And each and every day as, as we go about our day, we're, we're alive because we're taking for granted the fact that we can breathe in this oxygen and exhale and, and just repeat that cycle. And there's something that we can't see, but it is so real even, in fact, more real than this hard metal pulpit that is hurting my knuckles a bit as I bang it. Because this can't make me live. But what I can't see, it's still being so real that I'm breathing in, makes me live. And, and that's a beautiful analogy for looking to Jesus and His gospel. Yes, Jesus ascended 2,000 years ago, and we're waiting for Him to come back. And He's left us His Spirit that we can't see. And oftentimes the words in Scripture, they just feel like words, and, but until they become alive and, and they go inside us, and the Spirit is working from inside out us. And so how do we hope in Jesus when we don't feel like hoping in Him? Well, here's the clue. The psalmist says, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. This is talking about human princes and a human son of man. But this should make us think and, and, and remind us as we understand the whole story of Scripture, there's another prince another son of man. But he was different. Even though I don't feel like hoping in the Lord, it just is not in there in me, if I look at Jesus, who is this Prince of Peace, and Jesus, who was the Son of God, who came down to man to represent God to man, but then, 
he also became the Son of Man who went up to God to represent you and me to God. And if I remember that the Son of God became a Son of Man to make us sons of God, sons of glory, and if I keep looking at him, then he reminds me, as we're about to remember at this table, that he is my great help. And even though I feel helpless, as I walk with him, his grace will play out in ways, even in practical little ways, even in ways when you're looking for something you lost, when that heart of dependence is there, he will become increasingly your great help, and it will be your great joy. Let's pray.